It's the Kyle Hyman Show on Redeemer Radio. You know, there are examples of beauty in this, quote, modern art that people tend to reject just because, like you said, they may not always understand what the artist is doing. You can't talk about art history without seeing the impact Catholicism has had on art and the impact that art has had on Catholicism. It's time for our monthly art history lesson with Charles and Amanda Shepard from the Fort Wayne Museum of Art. All right, welcome to another episode of our Catholic art history lesson. I feel like I've been like the frog, right? (laughs) That you started this whole thing with all this fancy... Renaissance. More realistic kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And every... Like a couple months, you slip another modern piece art. Of modern art that I look at it and I was like, oh, you know, okay. Is, I've been thinking this about is this. A more simple type of modern art gets <laughs> a bad rap okay. by people who love the what we might call traditional style of art, the academic, realist, the art that the church sponsored throughout much of its history. Yeah. And then you hear this, well, I don't like modern art. I don't get it. And it's like, okay, I understand that. And I think when people say I don't like modern art, they're thinking of some of the more extreme examples. Like abstract art? Yeah, like or hi- even- yeah, or that my kid could do that. Uh-huh. And it's like, well, okay, maybe. I, I've heard that so many times that it, it doesn't really affect me anymore. But would you consider that to be, because I find myself in that camp at least sometimes. But I also recognize my lack of knowledge Mm -hmm. of art. And Mm -hmm. so to me, it's like an ignorant thing to say. And I recognize my ignorance. It is a simplistic point of view. And I don't blame people necessarily for honestly sharing their reactions of what they like or don't like. But when you cast aside modern art, but don't acknowledge that modern art has risen out of modern culture and that we're a part of modern culture and that we're as much a part of modernity as these artists were to pick out modern art and say, well, that's not real art. But then we moderns engage in all sorts of modern activities. <laughs> you know, it's like what I'm trying to do is present what modernism is in terms of art and that, yes, there are some examples that are hard to understand, hard to appreciate, even hard to digest. A lot of the artists that we've been talking about, these modern examples, come from sincere Catholic backgrounds, especially the European artists, Mm -hmm. and, you know, are not trying to take away any of the specialness or the beauty of traditional art, if we want to call it traditional art. Okay. You know, they're as much a part of the art world as anybody else, and we're sort of reacting to their culture, just like people in other disciplines. And, you know, the artists of the 14th and 15th century, that was the reigning style, the reigning culture. And the artists that sort of get cast aside as, oh, I don't like those modern artists, are responding to the culture. Mm -hmm. But things like what we're going to talk about, we Mm -hmm. we keep on teasing this and haven't (laughs) said it yet. I feel like this kind of art is not present in a lot of our Catholic churches. Well, uh, that's true. I think that the churches where we worship have maintained the uh, adherence to 
classical definitions of beauty. And I think that's wonderful. I think mm -hmm. our Gothic cathedrals are beautiful and we don't need to modernize our churches with modern art. There are some examples of modern artists who have created chapels. We've talked about right. some of those on this show. And I think that so long as, you know, theologically things are correct and that you can see classical definitions of beauty in their art, they shouldn't be excluded. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't want what we see in our churches to take us away from worship or from God or beauty itself. But you're right. Our churches do adhere to the Gothic style. And I think that's wonderful. I would probably prefer that in a house of worship rather than trying to strip things down and go full on modern because I think we then can get too spare and too, I don't know, maybe a little boring hmm. in a way. But, you know, there are examples of beauty in this, quote, modern art that yeah. people tend to reject just because, like you said, they may not always understand what the artist is doing. Yeah. So, I mean, I think going through these and I don't know, maybe like four or five different times we've talked about some different modern yeah. art, it's helped me to understand and look at it in a different way. So yeah. I think these are very helpful to walk yeah. through. So I'm excited about well, we're today's lesson. We're talking today about Georges Rouault, who was a French artist. He lived from 1871 to 1958. And he was born in a basement, grew up in poverty, and his mother encouraged him in the arts. We, we see that a lot in these artist stories where their mother encouraged them to pursue their creative path and at age 14, he took an apprenticeship as a glass painter and restorer. So keep that in mind. A glass painter? Like, a, like, like stained, stained glass? glass. Okay. Yeah. And keep that in mind as we look at his work, because I think we see in his own work the influences of stained glass and leaded glass and mm. what you might see in a Gothic cathedral window. Right, right. In particular, the dark outline right. that he uses consistently throughout all his years of working uh, on each figure. When you don't know that he's been in the glass world, you look at that and think, why Why is everybody, this is like a coloring book outline and he's colored in. <laughs> well, and that's what he was doing in glass. Yeah. He was yeah. coloring in between the leaded outlines of the silhouette. Right. And you think, oh, okay, I get that now. So he was associated with a group called the Fauvists and it comes from Les Fauves, which is French for wild beasts. Huh. And so they were, kind of seen in contrast to the Impressionists that might have had more delicate brush strokes, more examples of light, less about realism and more about giving you an impression of something. So the Fauvists, you kind of see more muscle behind their strokes, more bold and broad strokes, bold colors, reducing forms down to their essential elements. Like in this print that we're looking at is... Uh, Christ on the cross. And the cross actually divides the paper. The cross extends from top to bottom and left to right completely. Mm -hmm. And Christ is on the cross. So his body bisects the paper symmetrically. Mm -hmm. and, and then the arms also would, I don't know, what is that maybe a fourth of the way down sure, or something? Yes. A fifth of the way? And okay, it's not a renaissance painting but when you think about the properties of beauty 
Uh, symmetry is a property, order is a property, and luminosity is a property, hmm. and surprise, too, is a property of beauty. This print has all those things. It, was that just four things that you listed? Is yes. that like the four things? Well, or is- I, I, I won't definitively say that that's what the theologians say, but those are our properties. You've had the author, John Mark Miravalli, on the show before. Yeah. I just finished his book, Beauty, What It Is and Why It Matters, and he lists those properties descriptive of beauty. Okay, symmetry, luminosity. He talks about order and surprise quite a bit. So order is that it's ordered, Uh but then if it were just orderly, it'd be kind of mechanical. So there has to be an element of surprise. And, you know, in this... The figures are not perfectly balanced, even though Christ's figure is almost perfectly balanced. But the figures, like Charles said, they're divided with kind of these black outlines. So to the left of Christ, uh, I'm assuming that's John, the evangelist, and Mary, his mother. These were hmm. the figures at Christ's crucifixion and then Mary Magdalene on the left side of the composition. So... The symmetry that Christ gives is sort of quietly disrupted by the way the figures are uh, placed. So to me, there's that element of surprise that he hasn't chosen to completely make everything symmetrical. And then right above Mary Magdalene's head is this beautiful, fiery sunset. Mm -hmm. And that sort of helps your eye lead around the picture in an exciting and delightful way. (laughs) And then remember we said that Ruel was a um, an apprentice of stained glass makers. And when you look at a stained glass window, you see those, uh, every element is divided by that leaded outline. Mm-hmm. And the figures here, almost everything has a black outline to it. The contours of the body of Christ, his garment, the garments of the figures around him, every uh, sort of dimension of his body has a black outline to it. And that's what gives it that sort of power that the Fauvists used in their style. Okay. In in terms of modernity and chronology of, of moving from realistic illusion, which while beautiful and maybe more precise, people of this generation, the Fauvists, to some extent, even the Impressionists, they're using – color and form to impact you emotionally, even as your eyes register the fact that it's not trying to be precise. It's trying to be emotionally moving. Mm-hmm. And and the argument would be, for someone of his generation, would be that I can move you more with color, line, and form than this illusionistic thing and that's said with some derision, this illusionistic thing that somebody has trained for years to be able to make it almost like an actual photograph, well, it's A, it's an illusion, and B, it's not moving. Mine has power, and mine is moving. And so actually, uh, Rouault would have thought he's maybe the, the perfect Christian artist because he can deliver uh, this whatever the story is to you, uh-huh. and, and you'll get it. And at the same time that you get it, you're not trying to say, oh, I, I think his hands are too long for that body. <laughs> I'm worried about, you know, his legs are, you know. <laughs> right. Like, I mean. If you're tied up in that, 
you're not even paying attention to Christ on the cross. Yeah, definitely the the width of his torso is not yes. natural. No, yes. no, it's he's been elongated. But think about that in a conceptual mode. Look at Christ's posture. His arms are outstretched. We often think of Christ on the cross. He's giving it all, and yet in that powerful gift, he's powerless on the cross. He, mm. he can't move. He can't get off. His arms are outstretched in this very vulnerable position. He's naked. He's exposed. Everybody's watching him. And yet look at the postures of his disciples and his mom. Their arms are sort of hugged into themselves. Their heads are down. They're sort of curled up in the pain and the sorrow. And his body is mm. completely outstretched and completely open and giving. And, you know, without the treatment of the figures in that way, I don't know that we would get as much of that message if he hadn't chosen to sort of dramatically elongate that torso and stretch out those arms off the edge of the paper. You know, Christ's hands are not seen in the paper, but the rest of everybody's bodies are. Hmm. And so we sort of get this sense that Christ's body goes on and extends beyond this story. Mm -hmm. And of course, we as Catholics believe that the body of Christ, you know, extends beyond all space and time. Yeah, it's a great strategy, if you will, an artistic strategy to imply the infinity of Christ by having him go off the page. And yet his arms encompass both the people on his left and the right. And if you think of reality, he, he would have been on the cross. Well, first of all, the cross would not have been as heavy as this. Uh, that's a cross made out of an entire tree, it looks like. Yeah. And he would have been up much more up higher than they, but to make it read correctly so that we're seeing their faces and, and, and their dismay and their eyes, in the case of John, looking heavenward, he's got to cram it all together. So realism isn't going to help him. Hmm. He's got to take license with the reality of the scene is what he would tell you is that, yeah, I'm an artist. I get to take license. Yeah. Um, that's part of what I got in the manual when I bought this thing, you know. <laughs> So this print was made in 1936, and I want to sort of contextualize that with some of his development as an artist and also as a spiritual person. He became close friends with Jacques Maritain. Can, can I interrupt for sure. a second? You, you called this a print? It's a print. It's an aquatint in etching. Yes. What that's going to mean is that he's created this on a metal plate. So, oh. you, you know, you might paint on a canvas, but in the case of printmaking, you would either on a stone plate or a metal plate, you would create your painting, so to speak. Okay. Okay. And then once you've created it and you've etched it into the plate, you ink that plate up and the ink goes into the etched lines and then you wipe all the other ink off and you press your paper down with pressure on the metal plate. And when you lift it up, You've got this. Okay. And every single different color has a different plate. Well, we've got probably six, seven different colors going on here. Every one of those colors would have had a, a steel plate with just that part of the coloring. His Christ's body would have had just one plate. Which seems like a much more complicated way to do this. Oh, it, it, it's terribly complicated. <laughs> like that, that suddenly makes this seem like 
this is something that he did in a day or two to no, this must have taken Yes. This is complicated. Yeah. But one but then you can make multiples of it. Right. So that's the trade off, I guess. So if he in the case of he made a painting, you've got the one painting. Mm -hmm. And he's probably taken months to do that too. But someone buys that painting or he gives that to somebody, well, now you've got to start all over again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, and, and of course, since it's only the one, the price is going to be, oh, 10, 12, 20 times as much. So printmaking was legitimized by having artists agree that they would put a number on each print. So I'm going to create an edition of 25 prints. So number one of 25, number two of 25, so on. Mm -hmm. And at the end of 25, I destroy the plate. So now each print is a a legitimate art object, but because I made 25 of them, I can sell them for a fraction of the price of the painting. But if it's a famous image, I'm sorry, we're derailing here. (laughs) But if it's a a famous image, wouldn't those plates also be worth a a lot? Like, so destroying it, like, is there a way to destroy it, but still be able to sell these plates as an art piece? Um, No, and I'll tell you why. Basically, it's because the plate, once you're done making your prints, the plate has no color at all. Uh So it would be very difficult. You know, you kind of have to hold it up to the light to even see the, the, the scratches on the plate. And part of the agreement years ago in in legitimizing prints as an original art form was if by destroying the plate, you've ensured no one can ever make another print from there. Uh You won't do it, but even if you die, your kids won't do it. You know, somebody who finds them at auction later won't do it. So it's it's a way of making the print that you got made precious. Right. Even if there's 25 of them, they're still pretty precious. Yeah. That's a really good point because we haven't talked a lot about prints on this show. We've talked about paintings and painting is, it's a pretty straightforward process to understand for most people. Printing is, is a lot more esoteric in a way and it's good to explain it. And this looks like a painting. It does. The colors are so vibrant, um, but really good printmakers can achieve those vibrant colors. Hmm. So we said it was made in 1936 and I said that he became really close friends with Jacques Maritain, who was a converted Catholic philosopher. He was raised Protestant, and so he was really influenced by Maritain's philosophy. By the early 1900s, Rouault was committed to religious subjects full-time. Before that time, he he didn't do as much, but he also spent about a decade making portraits of who Christ referred to as the least of my brethren. Mm-hmm. So clowns, prostitutes, beggars, the downcast, huh. and not in a derisive way, sort of in a, a colorful, um, certainly not realistic in any way, but you get the sense that society treats them as rejects. Mm-hmm. But then after that time, he was doing more explicit religious subjects about the life of Christ. And he made a whole portfolio called Miserere. It was really interesting. A couple of things I want to get back to. We talked about him being an apprentice at um, a glass shop. He said, he said at one point, I do not feel as if I belong to this modern life. My real life is back in the age of the cathedrals. Hmm. So, Going back to our topic of people, you know, maybe saying, I don't like modern art. Look at some of the early modernists, and and that's the late 19th century. Look at some of these artists and try to find out who they're influenced by. And you might, 
your heart might soften a little bit to these moderns and understand where they're coming from in defense of modern artists. If they were just repeating what the Renaissance artists did, I don't think they could live with themselves. You know, Mm. you don't want to just keep doing what the other artists did. So, you know, Rowe wasn't necessarily trying to degrade anything. He really was influenced by Gothic cathedrals and that style of art. He also said something to his daughter, Isabel, who was an artist. He said, you will succeed in doing what is interesting, spiritual, Christian, and imaginative only by studying nature, which is really interesting because he's not saying you need to faithfully represent nature as it looks realistically, but you need to study it. And be influenced by it. Be influenced by it. Yeah. All right. So people can check this out. It's called Christ on the Cross. It's George with an S. I think it's a soft G, so it's George. George. Rual. Rual. R O U A U L T. Christ mm-hmm. on the Cross. Yep. And I'll put a, an image of it mm-hmm. in the show notes as well. So you can find that at mm-hmm. the website, kylehyman.com. He also did other religious things. It's like uh-huh. a Christ and the Apostles. Mm-hmm. He did. It's kind of a cool one. Yep. Yep. He, he did a lot of them, and people should, should check him out. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. What's going on here at the museum? We have a wonderful exhibition of American Impressionism. We've talked about Impressionism before. So you're going to see a lot of just really sumptuous paintings of American life, uh, landscapes, domestic scenes. And that came to us from the Huntington Museum of Art. So it's a national traveling exhibition. All right. And people can stop by the museum here Mm -hmm. in Fort Wayne. Also check out the website, social media, Mm -hmm. fwmoa.org. That's right. All right. Thank you, Charles and Amanda. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. For show notes on this episode and to find more shows, visit kylehyman.com. And until next time, remember to leave room for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit.